Well, good morning, everyone. It's very good to be with you. I'm trying an experiment this morning to use the lectern mic to see if it makes me less muffled. I have to say the technical team are deeply cynical about this exercise, but we'll see. So today we begin a major new series on the book of Exodus. We're going to tackle it in three blocks over the next two years. And between now and mid-October, we will study the first block, which is the first 10 chapters of the book. Exodus records a really powerful and moving story. It's the story of how God rescues his people from slavery in Egypt. And in the language of chapter 19, God bore them on eagles' wings and brought them to himself. With patience and love, God protects and loves the Israelites. And he makes a proposal to them. He proposes that they be his. His very own people, the people of God. They must learn to repudiate the values of Egypt and learn to love what God loves, value what God values. And the story ends with the nation living around the tabernacle, that divinely designed place uh, where God chose to dwell with the people he loved. In the end, God is in the center of his people. The author of Exodus doesn't particularly care that the book ends with the people still in the desert. God and the people are living in harmony and fellowship together, and that's all that seems to matter. Now, that little summary of the book is important because Exodus has been misused in the past to tell a completely different story. So-called liberation theology offers a false gospel in which poor and oppressed people can gain emancipation and wealth. So Exodus becomes the book of political revolutionaries, particularly in South America. Now, of course, slavery and poverty are bad things, and freeing people from those bad things is a good thing to do. But Exodus is not a textbook for Christian Marxists, because in Exodus, the people never reach the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. Their journey isn't to material prosperity. The journey is to God himself. I don't quite know what you think Christianity is about. Maybe you think it's about escaping the sadness and the deprivations of this world. Or perhaps you think it's about living a nice and uh, harmless life. Christianity is about a relationship with God. That is the entire purpose of this ancient book, to explain to us how sinful and helpless people can live in harmony and in fellowship with the God of the universe. So let's get underway by reading from the text, from chapter 1, uh, and we'll start at verse 8 through to 22. The context here is that 400 years have passed since the last chapter of Genesis. Egypt had been saved by an Israelite called Joseph. He had ruled Egypt as a wise and fair administrator. All his father's family had moved down uh, to Egypt to live with them. And over those 400 years, the Israelite families had multiplied. 12 families became 12 tribes, an extended family became a nation. So let's pick up the story in verse eight. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. 
Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Python and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Puah, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. That is a grim opening, isn't it? The book of Genesis begins with that beautiful picture of an unspoiled creation. God looked at all that he had made and it was good. We see Adam and Eve in the garden enjoying its fruitfulness and beauty. It's a lovely opening to the book. But this book opens with a terrible depiction of life. I'm going to make three points in this talk. One from this chapter and then two from the first ten verses of chapter two. And the headline I want to place over this chapter is The Hallmark of a Wicked Society. We read about Pharaoh's ghastly materialism, his relentless desire to accumulate and store stuff in his treasure cities. We read about slavery and infanticide. Now what do all those wicked things have in common? I suggest that the key hallmark of a wicked society is that it does not value human life. How can a society justify slavery? Well, it can do so when it believes that slaves are not real persons. In the words of the Greek philosopher Aristotle, slaves are just living tools. The abolition of slavery is perhaps Christianity's finest achievement in terms of social reform. But it's interesting to think about how William Wilberforce achieved that great victory. And it turns out that it was many, many centuries in the making. Some critics ask why the New Testament doesn't simply call for the abolition of slavery. Why did Paul not condemn it explicitly? Well, think what that strategy would have led to. Another Spartacus-type revolutionary 
which would have been crushed by the Romans. No. Paul's strategy, in the words of the historian Tom Holland, was to set off a depth charge in the ancient world by saying this, in Christ there is neither slave nor free. Paul was saying that personhood did not depend on social status. And so in the early church, a Christian master could give orders to his Christian slave, but in church, the slave might be one of the master's elders. And gradually the idea, the Christian idea, that all people have equal moral worth took root in Western culture. So in the US Declaration of Independence, we read those famous words. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. That truth isn't remotely self-evident. If you'd said it to an ancient Roman or Greek, they would have laughed in your face. It was the Christian concept of the Imago Dei that all of us are made in God's image that eventually led to the abolition of slavery. So once a society loses the Christian concept of personhood as an innate gift given by God, slavery becomes a live option. Well, you might say slavery is one thing, but how can a society justify the killing of innocent babies? For the same reason. When it believes that babies are not real persons, they're just potential persons. Now, Egypt wasn't alone in holding that view. Fifty years before Christ was born, the Romans had heated swimming pools. But don't let that sophistication fool you. Let me read a fragment of a letter written by a Roman nobleman to his pregnant wife. He writes, I remain in Alexandria. I ask and beg you to take good care of our baby son. And as soon as I receive a payment, I shall send it up to you. If you are delivered of a child before I come home, if it is a boy, keep it. If a girl, discard it. It was entirely lawful and normal to leave a girl, or sometimes a boy with a disability, to leave them out in the woods to be eaten by wild animals. And it happened so often that Rome had a much higher percentage of men than women. Even in large families, there was rarely more than one daughter. We tend to measure different cultures by the sophistication of their artistic life or their wealth and power and prestige. And using those standards, ancient Egypt or Rome would be admired. Busloads of tourists would ooh and ah as they saw the magnificent cultural artifacts in Pharaoh's store cities. We can fall into the same trap today. We can be tempted to think of Western civilization as a truly progressive and magnificent thing. Just look at those tall skyscrapers in New York or all that history in Prague. But now apply the litmus test I mentioned earlier. The hallmark of a truly wicked society is that it does not value human life. In a few weeks' time, we shall have to consider the plagues of Egypt, those terrible warnings that God sends to the Egyptians. And the first plague saw the Nile being turned into blood. And it is obvious from the passage we have just read why God chose that first plague. 
Pharaoh had already made the Nile red with blood when he ordered Hebrew babies to be thrown into it. I do wonder sometimes if we could see Western society as heaven sees it, we would see the Hudson and the Thames run red with blood. Violence against the most vulnerable is the hallmark of a wicked society. And once again, we see this question of personhood being raised. What makes a human being a person? Once we start to believe that personhood depends on function, then our society is descending into terrible violence. We're going back to Rome. So if I am self-sufficient, if I can decide things and communicate well, then I am a person. But if I am dependent, if I can't decide things or communicate, then I am not a person. That functional definition of personhood is the reason why euthanasia vans now drive around the Netherlands. And I'm not making this up. An old person who has started to show signs of dementia can have their life ended by a mobile killing station that will arrive at their home. The same argument, of course, applies to pre-born children and to infants. And it's really interesting to read how the early church lived in a culture in which abortion and infanticide were normalized. They didn't just protest. They set up orphanages and they rescued thousands of innocents, especially girls. No wonder it's reckoned that 70% of all Paul's churches contained women. Scripture honors two women for the stand they took against the killing of infants. And we even have their names recorded, Shifra and Pua. They were medics, midwives, who dared to disobey Pharaoh because they knew the value that God places on a human life. Some Christians have shaken their heads at this story and said, well, the two midwives lied. And so they did. But they say it's always wrong to lie. Well, if that sort of absolutism is right, why does Scripture commend them? Why does the text explicitly tell us that God blessed them? Christians believe in objective morality, not absolute morality. So the Bible says that it is wrong to lie. We can't just tell lies because we prefer to lie. Morality is not a matter of personal preference. But biblical morality is like a seamless robe so we can't divorce a specific moral question from its context. Take a member of the French resistance who is, was captured and tortured during the Second World War by the German Gestapo. With enormous bravery, he tells lies about the whereabouts of the other members of the resistance. Now, in Christian thought, that, that person's actions are moral because the saving the lives of innocent people is more important than lying to a murderous dictator. Now, before we leave this horrible story and turn to the lovely story found at the start of chapter 2, we should pause and reflect on the motivation of Pharaoh. It's easy to write him off as a sadistic sociopath. But the text tells us in verse 10 why Pharaoh was prepared to murder infants. And we can sum it up in one word. Paranoia. He was afraid, terrified that the Israelites would begin a political revolution. 
or they might side with an invader. That's why he only murdered male babies. He saw any man as a threat to his own power. It is often the case that people who exhibit paranoia idolize power. The most obvious example comes from the start of the New Testament. A man that history calls Herod the Great suffered from paranoia. Earlier on in his life, the Roman Emperor Augustus had bestowed on him the title, the King of the Jews. And so when he heard that a baby had been born who would one day become the King of the Jews, Herod's paranoia exploded. He had already murdered three of his own children out of fear that they might one day depose him. So he thought nothing of sending his troops to Bethlehem to murder every male child under two years old. Paranoia can cause us to treat others with anger or even cruelty. And it nearly always rises up in people who idolize power. Let me say this gently. Paranoia is a terrible sin. It destroys our ability to trust others. So the most innocent of actions are interpreted as a nasty dig or a deliberate snub. I know I've had to repent of paranoia at times in my life. So I suggest for your own spiritual well-being that you might want to examine your own heart for that ugly sin and repent of it. With a sense of relief, let's now read the lovely story found in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the river bank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. I mentioned the contrast between the beginning of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus earlier. Of course, in the Genesis story, the skies do darken after sin enters into God's good creation. And soon the earth is filled with violence and things become so bleak that God determines to bring a terrible judgment on the earth, the great flood. Humanity would have been obliterated had it not been for one righteous man and his family, the man called Noah. Noah, in obedience to God's command, builds an ark, and he and his family shelter from the flood waters in the ark. Now, I mention that because it seems clear that the writer of Exodus had the story of Noah in the, at the back of his mind when he wrote Exodus chapter 2, because it tells us how Moses' parents built a little ark made out of papyrus. Like the Genesis ark, they coated it with pitch and tar, 
before setting that fragile little craft upon the waters of the Nile. What is the purpose of that illusion? Uh, I was kindly invited out for supper by a young couple from the church, and I asked them that question because I, I didn't know the answer. And I was delighted when I was furnished with a really helpful suggestion. So think back to Noah and his family inside the ark. As they huddled in that wooden structure, they represented the entire future of humanity. If they had perished, humanity's story would have ended. So all the hopes and aspirations of the human race were bound up within that ark. And I think the writer to Exodus is pointing us to the little baby floating on the river Nile, telling us once again that the future of the world lay inside that little ark. As we move through Exodus, we shall see Moses presented to us time and time again as what we might call the captain of Israel's salvation. He leads his people from danger to safety. By accepting his lordship, the people are rescued from the power of Pharaoh. So all of Israel's hopes and their aspirations were bound up with the person who at the moment was in that little ark on the Nile. Not just them, us too. Because it was from the nation of Israel that a greater than Moses would come. And like Moses, we first meet him as a fragile baby. He lies crying in a wooden manger, an animal feeding trough. But when grown up, Christ would become the saviour of the world. My first point was the hallmark of a wicked society. My second point is the vulnerability of the saviour. It seems to make no sense to place Moses in the very spot where the Hebrew babies were being killed. But then it seems to make no sense to keep the baby Jesus in the place where Herod's soldiers would slaughter the innocents. The baby Moses cried because he was cold and alone. He wanted to feel the warmth and the security of his mother's arms. Well, think of the first traumatic memories of the baby called Jesus. The panicked, rushed packing of what few possessions that little family owned. The terrifying journey by night out of Bethlehem. The infant Christ had to experience childhood trauma. He could sense his mother's fear could see his earthly father's face drawn tight with anxiety. I am very glad that the Lord Jesus did not arrive on this earth as a fully grown man. Because to be fully human is to grow from infancy. And in a fallen world, some of us have childhood trauma that lurks in the back of our minds. Jesus was made just like us, yet without sin. So perhaps he can even remember crying inconsolably or being too afraid to cry. This ancient story is setting a pattern, a pattern that will be fulfilled at the first Christmas. God did not arrive to rescue his people at the head of a column of tanks. There was no thunder run. This was no mere power struggle. And as we're going to see next week, that was a hard lesson for Moses to learn. Moses would save his people, not by power, but by declaring God's name to them. In other words, he would tell people what God was really like. And that knowledge would inspire their love and loyalty, drawing out their trust so that eventually they would follow Moses out of Egypt as their captain. So with us, God will not save you by zapping your enemies with a death ray. In Christ, God makes himself vulnerable. He comes close and reveals what he is really like. 
And as you discover what God is really like, your love and your loyalty will be inspired. Faith in the captain of your salvation in Jesus Christ will grow. And so you will trust him to leave the value system of this world behind and live in fellowship with him. So we have thought about the hallmark of a wicked society. Societies, no matter how wealthy or sophisticated they seem, are wicked if they do not value human life. Then we thought about the vulnerability of the Savior. God makes himself vulnerable in order to win our hearts. But lastly, I want to think about the strategic role of Christian parents. And to make this point, if you have a Bible, turn with me again, but this time to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11, verses 23 to 26. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. Exodus 2 is a lovely little drama. Uh, it used to be a favorite uh, during CSSM for sketches. So we think of Miriam, Moses' older sister, hiding behind a tree as she watches Pharaoh's daughter open the little ark, lift the crying infant out. And we have to commend Pharaoh's daughter for her kindness. In the midst of this pitiless scene, the woman shows some genuine humanity. She really does. And Miriam waits for just the right moment to approach the Egyptian princess and offer to find a nurse for the child. And so in a moment that makes the reader smile, Moses' mum gets to be paid by the palace to raise her own child. Moses' parents were called Ammon and Jochebed. Perhaps one day in heaven you will see a great throng around Moses, and rightly so, because he was the greatest leader in world history. But in the background, you might see an ordinary-looking couple smiling with quiet satisfaction as they look at their son. Right from his birth, Ammon and Jochebed had discerned that Moses was no ordinary child. God had his hand upon him. And so they made this heartrending decision after three months to set him afloat on the Nile and entrust him to God's care. How hard it must be for a parent to come to that point when they must set their child afloat and entrust them to God. But now Moses' mum had a few precious years to nurture and develop her son. And the question is, how should she go about her task? Moses faced some uh, crucial choices in life. And Hebrew tells us the impact that his mum and dad had. Think of him as a teenager. Instead of being raised in a tiny hut with few amenities, he suddenly finds himself walking on the marble floors of a palace. He has but to clap his hands and a slave will feed him grapes. I just made that up, but I'm sure it's true. He starts to learn the sophisticated culture of the Egyptians. He learns new languages. I think he learned to write on those Eastern, Eastern Semitic scripts. He starts to appreciate business and art and political statesmanship. Before long, he must have looked and sounded like an Egyptian aristocrat, someone who was comfortable with diplomatic protocols. Now, of course, God had ordained that journey because Moses needed all those skills 
when he would one day interact with Moses uh, during the period of the plagues. But what a risk God took. How easy it would have been for Moses to sneer at his humble upbringing, to dissociate himself from those slaves and start walking like an Egyptian. Some of you might get that joke. Hebrews tells us that Moses made a much better choice. He refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. And that decision, brothers and sisters, was all down to his mother and father. In the few years they had to take care of Moses, they built truth into their son's heart. Of course, they told Moses the old Bible stories about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But they also showed him the lasting value of God's values in contrast to the values of Egypt. By refusing to become bitter or envious because of their slavery, they showed their son how to live in hope. They answered all his questions so that when he had left the family home, he could survive in a pagan world that offered glittering attractions like status and money and power. I don't even need to apply that point, do I? Being a Christian parent is perhaps the most strategic job anyone can have in this cultural moment. You will only have your children for a few short years. Soon they will be walking down the marble floors of a pagan world. And it will be the truth that you have built into them, the truth that you have modeled in your own life that will protect them from worldliness. I'm not trying to instill guilt here. The father in the story of the prodigal son did everything right, and yet he had to experience the heartache of a prodigal. So none of us should judge the other in how families turn out. My point is better understood in the, in the sense of being an opportunity. Think once again of Ammon and Jochebed in heaven looking at their son. How grateful to God they must feel that God had used their routine humdrum lives to build up a servant like Moses. How privileged they must feel. Now, none of you will raise a Moses, but you might raise someone who will be used greatly by God. Or they might be a parent or grandparent to a great servant in years to come. So be encouraged when you catch a glimpse of the potential in your children. And that point brings us back full circle, the value of a human life. One of the reasons why abortion and infanticide are to be shunned, I'm talking about abortion on demand here. One of the reasons they're to be shunned is that it's not just one life that has ended. Think of the potential future generations sacrificed on the altar of convenience. So we have thought of three things, the, the hallmark of a wicked society, the vulnerability of the savior, and the strategic role of Christian parents. May God bless his word to our hearts. Let's close in a word of prayer, and then we'll have a final song. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would help this community as you helped the early church to stand and to live for the value of a human life. And not just with words, but with actions. And we thank you, Father, for reminding us that Christ came close to us 
and he made himself vulnerable so that he could declare his, your name to us and in so doing inspire our love and loyalty that would uh, allow us to follow him, the captain of our salvation, out of the value system of this world and into a relationship with you. And finally, Father, we pray for Christian parents in this room. We pray you would bless them and encourage them. What a difficult, challenging task they have. Give them wisdom and stamina and oceans of love that they might nurture and develop their children in the admonition of the Lord, to build truth into them, to model truth before them so that their children will be able to stand on the marble floors of a pagan world and choose to bear the disgrace of Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.